Hi, Sacred Tension fans. My name is Matt Langston, and I play in a band called Eleventy Seven. I'm an artist, a producer, and I also host my own podcast right here on Rock Candy called Eleventy Life. We talk with the people behind your favorite songs and albums, from the writers to the producers and everyone in between. And we're not asking your favorite artists the same old boring questions like where did your band name come from and who's your favorite Friends character. We're asking questions like why did your marriage fail? Where does love come from? Is God real? It is a show about the importance of creativity and pursuing your passions. And we don't let guests leave until it gets a little bit uncomfortable. So check it out right here on Rock Candy and your favorite podcast app. So, so quasars are among the most distant things that we can see because we're seeing back billions of years to the epoch in universal time when galaxies were being formed. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, before we get started, as always, just a few pieces of housekeeping. First, I have to thank my most recent patrons who have made this podcast possible. Special thanks goes out to K.M. Reeves, Santiago Hernandez, and Laura Elliott Mixon. And if you want to join their number, go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. For $1 to $10 a month, you get all kinds of extra content. You get my weekly meditations on the tarot. You get my Very Not Safe for Work podcast, House of Heretics, with Hindu Ramakrishna Das. So weird conversations with myself, a Satanist, and Ramakrishna Das about faith and life and whatever's in the news that week. We're all about developing weird ecumenical relationships here at Sacred Tension and Rock Candy Podcast. So if that interests you, then please become a patron. It ensures the long life of my work. If you enjoy my blog every Thursday and my podcast every Monday, you becoming a patron is really the best way to ensure that my work continues to keep going. Also, if you enjoyed Rock Candy's appearance at the Wild Goose Festival in 2019, if you liked our live events, if you liked the Rock Candy Christmas party and you saw all of our music and live talks, if you enjoy the other podcasts on the Rock Candy Network, Bubble and Squeak, Bible Bash, Eleventy Life, and so on, then you donating to my Patreon will help that as well. And also, we are continuing to grow the Rock Candy Podcast Network. So if you have an idea for a podcast, if you're thinking of starting one, if you already have a podcast in the works and you would like to join the network and contribute to our goal of creating a weirder and more curious and kind world, then please send me a pitch. Send me an email by going to stephenbradfordlong.com. Go to the contact page there and I cannot wait to hear your idea for a podcast. And if we think it's a good fit, then we might bring you on board. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, 
I am delighted to welcome Paul Wallace to the show. He is an astrophysicist and a pastor. He is the author of Love and Quasars, among other books. Paul, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. Uh, I appreciate your uh, invitation. Yeah, so we kind of had this chance encounter on Twitter where I, I I recently read a book by the theologian David Bentley Hart in which he, you know, corrected a lot of the, you know, lazy history of some atheists. And since he corrected them, I'm now finding those mistakes everywhere <laughs> in when I read <laughs> science, you know, when I read. And, and one of those mistakes is, you know, the ancient world saw or the medieval Christian world or whatever saw the saw Earth, saw the human race as central to the universe, uh, you know, kind of th- that man was the whole point of the cosmos. And what uh, David Bentley Hart said was, no, that's not true. You know, the the uh, medieval Christians saw themselves at the lowest tier and saw Earth as like at the very basement level of the cosmos <laughs> on the far right. periphery. And I don't know, since reading his book, I'm now seeing this stuff all over the place. And I was reading a, a piece by a psychologist and he's he said, oh, you know, the ancients, they saw themselves as the center of the universe and geocentrism and all that. And I took a screenshot of it and I retweeted it. And I was like, you know, I've learned that this is, in fact, wrong. And you commented saying, yes, that is correct. (laughs) And so and then I checked out your work and thought that you were a very interesting person and that I'd like to have you on the show. So that is the long winded story of how Paul Wallace came to meet sacred tension. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So tell us in your own words kind of who you are and what you do. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, Again, uh, I I have two jobs, one sort of a two-thirds time job. One of them is a part-time job. Well, they're both part-time jobs, but one of them is sort of a one-third time job, but they add up to about one and a half jobs. This is getting Uh, very complicated. This is requiring math. math. I'm not good at math. (laughs) (laughs) The point is is that I have two jobs. One is I teach uh, physics and astronomy at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia. It's a women's college, four-year liberal arts uh, college, and so I teach a whole range of courses here. And then about maybe uh, three-quarters of a mile north of here is First Baptist Church of Decatur, and I am a pastor for adult education there, and that's my one-third time job. So I do both of those jobs. Um, I'm a pastor, and that means I do the whole – I do – I mean, my title is adult education, but I do all the stuff you'd think normally that most pastors do. Uh, you know, I preach occasionally. I do some pastoral care, you know, but mostly, mostly I run educational programs for adults there. Mm. And it seems like you have a side gig as a faith and science communicator online. Right. And, and you have right. several books out, and I'm near the end of Love and Quasars, which is your—am I saying that right, by the way? Quasars? That's right. That's right. Quasars? Yeah, okay. I, I've, I, as, as somebody who is, you know, as, as an astronomer who's known the word for, for decades, I, 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 have, I have been mildly surprised that so many people don't know how to say, say that word. <laughs> Yeah, you, and, uh, and, uh, you use yeah, a lot of exactly words. Right. You use a lot of words in your book that I don't know how to say. Um, so, you know, I you are a, a Christian and presumably yes. athe- atheistic Christian. I, not yes. atheist. You're, you're not atheist. No, no, you no, are no, a there's space. There's a gap between the A <laughs> theist, and the T, yes. right. You are, and, and I am a non-theist. Right. I no longer consider myself a Christian, but I have a lot of 
love for the Christian traditions that nurtured me. Mm-hmm. And I, I went into the book kind of expecting quite a bit of disagreement. And there's some, but what I think surprised me is how much I agree with you. Your book is not a Ken Ham-esque, here's how we, you know, make the Bible, make a literal reading of the Bible and a kind of bastardized version of science fit together into some, you know, terrible mutant. Um, Right. Uh, you, you have a much more expansive view of the universe and of the Bible and of God. But I think what your book speaks to most for me is a yearning for some kind of spiritual meta narrative that, that bestows meaning and purpose on your life. Mm -hmm. And that is fair. Yeah. And, and I see that that's what speaks to me the most in your book and how you as an astrophysicist feel that science alone cannot fulfill that. Could you talk some about that? Because I think this is really important that, you know, you tell you, you tell this story early in the book about how, you know, you made this discovery about a quasar or something. And yes. <laughs> and how it was, you know, this amazing, wonderful, beautiful time. But then there's also this sense of emptiness within it or, or something incomplete. Could you tell that story? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I spent uh, several years at Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. That's NASA's. It's actually their oldest sort of research center um, just in the, in the suburbs of Washington. And I spent some uh, time up there and uh, working with folks uh, as, a, as an astrophysicist. And we, you know, I, I worked uh, with a certain group. We, we made all sorts of discoveries, but one in particular was sort of powerful for me. And it was basically the discovery that this, this it was a strange source of, of, of light. And essentially what happened was we, we identified a new, a new class of quasars, what it really came down to. Mm. Uh, quasar is, a, is essentially a, you know, galaxies like our own Milky Way. When they are first forming, they're very energetic and very bright. And when, we, when I say a quasar, what I'm talking about is seeing the formation of a galaxy very, very far away. And I'm seeing that bright spot. Uh, where a galaxy is being formed. So a but quasar. The, so so just to clarify, a quasar is a young galaxy that that's right in that like right. dynamic, amazing, energetic state as it is forming. Exactly, and, okay. and you probably know that when we look back in space, we're looking back in time. Yes, yes. Right. So so quasars are among the most distant things that we can see. Because we're seeing back billions of years to the epoch in universal time when galaxies were being formed. Mm. Yeah, so our galaxy that's, was formed. That's shit safe. that keeps me up at night. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's good. It's good. It's important. That's excellent. Yes. Uh, so, so basically, uh, we're looking back at a time when uh, a galaxy, which today is much like our own, but we're looking back and seeing it at the time it was being formed. That's and so crazy. it's very energetic. And that's what a quasar is. And this quasar, I won't get into the weeds here, but basically there were certain properties of it that made it highly unusual. Hmm. And when we were able to identify what it was we were looking at, it was a very powerful, and I would say ultimately a spiritual experience for me, that just the the sense of, of having reached, I felt like I had sort of reached back across like 
you know, seven billion year, light years of space mm-hmm. um, to because I, I because I, I could it amazed me that I on this little planet could know something yeah. about something that was you know when it was when the light left it it was seven billion light years away now it's probably you know twenty billion light years away mm. you know on that scale and so it was a really amazing experience and and uh, and you know ex- experiences like that bring to mind sort of the incredible. Uh, physical complexity and uh, dynamism and energy uh, in the universe. And I, when I had made that discovery, I had this sense that I could sort of see the whole thing at once. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a little overwhelming. And I and also spent time as a, as a nuclear physicist in graduate school, so I was also thinking about the very tiniest things. Uh, so I could sort of see it all at once. And so it was this kind of this cosmic vision of the universe, but it was purely... Uh, scientific vision. And what I write about in the book is that ultimately that kind of vision completely occupies my mind, but it does it, it, it leaves me feeling a little bit lost, a little bit cold, and because I, I, I don't see how I fit in that in anything but in anything but a biological way. You know what I'm saying? I mean, all the values we base our lives on, like love and hope and faith, at least us Christians, um, it's, it's sort of hard to see where all that fits in such a cosmic picture. Yes, yeah, and and that is where religion comes in. And you know, I I found yeah I I I found myself relating to to this a lot. I am a non-theist, and I like to say, well, that just means I'm an atheist, but I'm not an asshole about it. And <laughs> that's like I say, I'm a Baptist, but I'm not angry about it. <laughs> yes, exactly. I, I, understand, um, I understand your predicament in some way. Yes, you know, I'm, I'm, I've decided to just relinquish the word atheist altogether because I find that it just predisposes people to approach me in the least charitable possible way. Mm. Um, right. I, you know, I feel like it's been corrupted from like two sides. You know, one side is the epic douchebaggery of certain prominent atheists. And then on the other side is what really feels like this anti-atheist campaign in certain Christian circles who try mm-hmm. to to belittle and dehumanize and uh, reduce the word to its lowest level. And right. I've, I've just found it more useful to let go of the word altogether and to opt for another word that that doesn't quite have that that baggage yet. But I've you know, I've found myself relating to a lot of what you say in this book because science is ultimately this, inc- you know, it's this incredible scalpel that can reveal extraordinary things about the universe. But what's most incredible about science, I think, is what it doesn't reveal. We don't know, you know, every night we dream and we don't know why. Every night we enter this incredible state of consciousness and and we don't know why. Uh, we don't know how. You know, we, we know some, but really the mysteries of mind and consciousness are, are unavailable to us. We don't know that shit. And the, it's almost like the most fundamental things about, con, about our human lives cannot be explained yet or at all by science. Right. Um, it remains to be seen. It remains yeah, to be how seen. How far science can go. And I think science will go quite a long way, but whether or not it can do that is a question. Yeah, yeah, and and um, this leaves me 
with I don't know this this need for something more this this need for how do I account for my goals of love and compassion how do I account right. for and all of that and I see you speaking right. to that and really I see you speaking to something that I wish more atheists and non-theists understood which is that for a lot of people for a lot of religious people th- there's a vo- there's a sense of void that makes being a non-theist or an atheist feel unacceptable to them um, right and and I right. think that that is something that atheists just don't understand or not all but but some you talk about several different models of how you engage faith and science and you talk about the, how there are you know these these several different models of uh religion right. and science as strangers religion and science as friends and religion and science as lovers could you talk through mm-hmm. that some sure uh, i'd like to say one thing though about Absolutely. what you just said before before i get to that question you talked about you know science uh working on the question of consciousness and all of this and uh, what I want to make clear uh, about my sort of perspective is that even if science does that, mm. I mean, just like lays it all out in the light on the table, it's still that is not good. That is not going to close the gap for me. Close the gap for you. In other words, in other words, what I mean is that is that I don't, and I and I think I've made this clear in the book, but I, I just want to make the listeners clear Absolutely. that I don't believe that God and meaning hides in those pockets of the world that we don't understand, right. like the, consciousness. The God and the God of the gap, in other words. Right, right, right. I don't hold to that. And if even if science solved, I mean, solved consciousness as a totally closed problem, just nailed it, I would still have the the my my restlessness and my and my urge to. Uh, uh, to worship essentially would not go away that that would not make me think oh now that we understand everything uh i can do away with my 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 craving for god i can i can ignore that now so that that bit is interesting before we get on to the kind of the the relationship between faith and science talk more yeah. about that talk more about that urge for worship what is that well what is what is that you know, the, the, I'll be honest with you. I don't know what it is. Okay. Um, but I have stopped fighting it. Yeah. Um, and I went to a talk a couple of nights ago. It was actually a Hasidic physicist talking about Kabbalah and quantum mechanics, and it was quite a head trip. But, hmm. but he he made this statement at the end of his talk, and he said, you know, people ask me if I believe in God, and my honest answer to that question is. I've never seen a definition of God that I can say yes to about that, and never seen a definition of the word "exist" that I can that 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 I can you know never seen a combination of meanings of those two words, God and existence, that makes him able to say yes without qualification. But he said that what I have done with my life is I have submitted to the fact that I am fascinated by my faith and by its ritual and by its direction, and I'm walking in that direction, even though I don't really ultimately, at the end of the day, understand it. And that's exactly and that's exactly how I feel. I feel like I'm following my spiritual intuition here, and, and the God that I believe in, and I do believe in a God, uh, I agree with him that, you know, it's not a God that I can easily define. There are words that I have for it, and the word, and then also there's a problem with the word exist. Uh, right. when it comes to God. And so, but, but I, I do feel like that I, um, I, I have allowed myself at this point in my life to fully surrender to the fact that I am, I, I am, I am irrevocably religious. 
and I just so I have to I have to live that out. What are the words that you would use to describe God? Well, um, you know, as a Christian, I have to first thing I'd have to do is is look to Jesus because uh, my understanding of Jesus is that uh, Jesus is what God is like, and uh, and even in saying those words, uh, you discover some things that are really powerful. One is that in becoming flesh and becoming incarnated, God gave up power. Therefore, it is God-like to give up power. So that's one thing I think of when I think of God. It's not a God of control or coercion. The God that I uh, believe in is not a God that will manipulate um, human beings or, or really even uh, nature for that matter, but a God that draws us toward God. In the, in, in, in the midst of the, of, of the chaotic world we live in, I, I feel like there's, there's always this, it's almost like a, a wooing or a lulling or a drawing towards uh, the divine, which I call God, and that and that is what I am trying to follow in my own, you know, little way. So I'm not doing this to be uh, annoying, but just to kind of try to pin that down a bit more. Understanding, of course, that these are are probably incomplete. So science, Mike talks about the uh, at least God. So God is at least, you know, the the physical mm-hmm. law, you know, the the laws that that determine and sustain the cosmos, and and we can think of those as God uh, or ultimate reality. And, and so that's kind of a, a materialistic, pantheistic view of God. But and then there's sure. a more of a classical theist view of God, which is God is the source of all existence that that all material reality is contingent upon and uh, or a Paul Tillichian view which is God is the ground of being you know is there a particular kind of articulation of God that you find yourself agreeing with the most yeah I'd have of, of the ones you just mentioned and I probably would have said this if you hadn't mentioned it uh, or some version of it is Tillich round of being okay um, that's that's one that that is certainly of the ones you just listed uh mm. the one that I would put most of my uh, lean most of my weight into yeah um but I also have to uh say that um i i the, the book of job is really interesting because in the book of job god god is at once kind of a bastard just a bully uh but on the other on the, on the other hand if you actually read through the poetry you can see that god is is in, is especially near the end of the book god is in love with creation and is trying to show job uh creation through basically through god's eyes you know haven't you ever seen haven't you ever seen you know the wild ass before haven't you ever seen the vulture before and haven't you ever seen the stars before and and god seems to be quite in love with uh, uh creation and so god is at once this truly cosmic sort of i won't I'll say force that's 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 too uh, too uh, doesn't seem right uh but this truly cosmic presence but also uh what's often missed in the book of job is that god actually did show up personally for Job. Hmm. And so the God that I, I believe in is, is that both intensely personal and also impersonal and cosmic. It's really a, a, a balance of the two in my mind. That's interesting because, yeah, you, you know, I won't get too deep into my own 
um, you know, crazy journey. But, you know, listeners are already very well aware of that. But I relate to that. Even though I'm far outside of Christianity now, I, I you know, I call myself post-Christian and I've really found my home within the Satanic Temple. I, I still relate to that. You know, you're, you're kind of living and working within the scientific community. I, I think the public perception of especially, you know, physicists and astrophysicists and nuclear physicists and all that is that you're all just kind of stone cold atheists. Um, uh, is that perception true or? Um, I, no, it's not. In fact, okay. I think, and it's been a while since I've seen the numbers on it, but I think that of the scientists, the physicists tend to be the ones who are most likely to believe. And I, I can think of two reasons for this. Um, one is that, and, and this is uh, perhaps a bit pejorative, uh, you know, but I think that we sort of live in an ideal world. We live in a math, very highly mathematical, symmetric kind of world that's really quite beautiful in a very austere kind of way. And mm. we're kind of removed from the, you know, from the world that biologists see, for example, the messy, bloody, violent, right. uh, seemingly pointless you know, uh, parade of death that evolution is. Yeah. Um, and so we're in, in one sense, we're kind of insulated, sort of live in this world of sort of platonic kind of a world of, of, of ideals like that. Um, and that, that may or may not be so, but another reason I think that, that physicists especially are more likely to, I think, believe in God or have active spiritual, you know, pointedly conscious spiritual lives is because we deal with, uh, Quantum mechanics, for example. Yes, really spooky you know, shit. It's re- it's really it is kind of spooky shit. It is. It's really um it, it does not follow normal rules. There's a lot of even today. There's a lot of paradoxes in it. Things that that where 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 you know there's sort of a collision of different ideas and two and you have to hold two contrasting ideas in your mind at the same time. Yeah. Um, and hold them both with utter seriousness. Um, for example, quantum um, field theory. You know, there's no more successful theory in the in the universe. I mean, we, we've down to like 14 decimal places. You know, we yeah. can measure the weight of a table to 14 decimal places. And we can talk about electrons to 14 decimal places. And not only that, but we use quantum physics in our technology like what absolutely you know like what we know you know people i think tend to think of quantum physics as sort of this esoteric hermetically sealed weirdness that has nothing to do with modern life and it absolutely does you know we use these equations all the time right all the time in our technology in our daily lives and yet we we use it, and yet it is so fundamentally mysterious. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. It is. Yeah. It is, and 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 you, and you have to do a, a level of thinking. I think that just doesn't show up in other more, I guess, concrete, if you want to think of it, or or you know, sort of macroscopic sciences. But I, I'm pretty convinced that you know, if you know, talk about use of quantum mechanics, you know, quantum computing is coming, and yeah. it's going to revolutionize computing. And I think that whenever, if we ever do figure out the problem of consciousness, it's going to be a purely quantum thing. It's, yeah, it's I I agree with you on that. Yeah, I totally um, agree with that. But that's another reason I think that, that physicists 
tend to be, uh, I mean, it's still a minority of us. I'm still a minority voice, uh, no doubt, but I think that still um, we're relatively likely among scientists to believe in uh, God or to be spiritual, I think, for those reasons. So basically what I'm hearing is spiritual or theistic physicists, you're still a minority, but it is a yeah. larger minority than in other scientific fields. That's right. That's okay. right. I think that you know, cer- certainly uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure more than, say, biologists, but definitely more so than like social scientists. Yeah. So, and by the way, and this is probably something that I should have said as a caveat at the beginning of the show. So, dear listeners, I need you to understand, and you probably already know this, that my show covers a very wide range of topics. I talk to theists and atheists and skeptics and literally everyone under the sun. So if you're an atheist and you're bristling at the fact that I'm having this conversation, deal with it. Get the fuck over it. Um, <laughs> moving on. Um, so, I, you know, another thing that I can think of, you know, just as someone from the outside looking in on this field, maybe another reason physicists are more likely to believe in God is that they are connected with a reality that is totally different from the lived mm-hmm. everyday reality that we experience. Yes. Right. And right. That, right. And, and that right. reality is ultimately way weirder, way spookier, far more alien than the reality that we have been evolved to experience. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And, so and you that, ha- you, we have a lot of practice in, in thinking about things that are both weird, yeah. uh, counterintuitive and real at the same time. Yeah. You know, I th- do you think that that so you talk about this need for for lack of a better term mysticism. You talk about this need for religious experience that is not satiated by science. Do you think that what I what because I have that too and mm-hmm. I feel like I live in a world of paradoxes where on the one hand I am a non-theist and I am an atheist, but on the other hand I like to call myself a mystic. I'm a yogi, I practice meditation, I have experiences with what I can only call the divine. I you know, I love altered states of consciousness. I love all that stuff. It it brings my life great joy. And I feel like I can hold both of those at the same time. On the one hand, being like, I do not believe that God has met his burden of proof. Therefore, why should I believe it? And then on the right, other sure. and then on the other hand, I have these experiences anyway. I don't know if they correlate to any ultimate reality, but they give my life a sense of joy. Yeah. I, I don't think that's inconsistent. I don't. If you think about sort of the harder those Buddhists, um, yes. they're very similar to what you're talking about. They're, they're not theists. I mean, they, you know, I mean, some of them are strictly atheistic, but most Buddhists, if you ask them, they'll say, well, God's a nice idea. It might, might be true, might not be, but, you know, what I want to do is, you know, relieve suffering. And Exactly. Um, you know, so I, I don't see your perspective as being all that um, unusual. That's good. Well, yeah, and I agree. I just think that, I don't know, especially in our current American religious milieu— <laughs> I think it's very strange to people, you know, and and one of the reasons why I left 
Christianity was because I could no longer affirm the creeds. Well, mm-hmm. as, as true. Well, you know, I I run into this kind of hilarious problem, hilarious to me, which is half of the Christians I talk to are like, oh, that, you know, that's great. That's wonderful. You know, I'm glad that you left because the creeds need to be upheld. And then the other half are are deeply alarmed that I would ever take the central creed so seriously. <laughs> <laughs> that oh. I would, that I would ever, you know, they were they're alarmed that I would ever take them so seriously and so literally. But for me, it really does come down to ultimate for, with Christianity, and this is kind of a, a side. This sure. is a tangent, okay. but what it really comes down to for me is there are central claims about Christianity that I culturally felt like I had to sign off on that I couldn't. Okay, Christ was so raised. As- but yeah, that's great. To be honest, you had to you yeah. know, walk away. But what I wanted, what I wanted was a was a Christianity that was more focused on praxis. That was okay. that was focused on ortho ortho um what's the word? Orthopraxis. Orthopraxy. Okay. Orthopraxy and not orthodoxy. You know, a right a, a religion that I where I wanted to be able to say, you know, I don't know what the fuck's out there. I have no clue if this is if this is true or not. But I still experience the person of Christ. I still have the experience. I don't know if that experience correlates to ultimate reality. I don't know if it is true, but it is a meaningful experience. And but you know, I found that I couldn't have that. I couldn't have that in my faith community, and you know, what, for, for what what I, I, I don't want to get too far down this road, I sure, off, off off the path. But what what community was it? What what church was it? That you it was were the in? it was the LGBT and Episcopal community, actually. Um, okay, which kind of surprises a lot of people because you know Episcopalians yeah. are you know known for you know being uh, the the whitest, most liberal, most you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bishop yeah, Shelby they're also Spong. the ones who, 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 to me, the or at least in the Protestant world, come closest to what you're talking about, which is a church that that you know it's the Eucharist that brings you together. Exactly, it's, uh, the, it's the liturgy that brings you together. It, and you can <laughs> you can think whatever the hell you want, but that's what brings you together. Exactly, and, and it's so, how we pray. So yeah, yeah. It, Precisely. And, you know, what I but what I found is a cultural movement kind of away from that. um, And so socially progressive, which is great, uh, theologically conservative um, and and especially among my generation, especially among younger LGBT progressives and basically saying, well, if you don't literally believe it, then what's the fucking point? What what's the point of this? And, you know, at that and it's a small thing. You know, I I know a lot of people who who are where I am, but they're just not as beaten down as I am. You know, I'm I'm gay. I've lived with mental illness. You know, I've I've been fighting for my inclusion in the church my entire life. And by the time it got to this, I was like, you know what? I'm done. <laughs> I've <laughs> I've I've given up. I'm I'm done. You know, I've I've fought for my inclusion as an LGBT person, as a as a queer person, as a as a mentally ill person, as a you know all of this stuff. And it's like, you know what? Now I'm done. I'll I'll find my spiritual path elsewhere. But to connect. To what you've been saying, 
I am a deeply religious person. I can't get rid of that. And I can be skeptical, and I I am very skeptical. You know, there's part of my mind that's, you know, deeply rational and, and reductionistic, yeah. but then there's a part yeah. of my mind that is yeah. deeply, deeply religious. And I've kind of found a ready-made community for people like that within the Satanic Temple. I, I guess just bringing it back around to... I relate to what you're saying. I think I'm finding it in a different way. I also wonder if there's sort... This is something that I'm noticing more and more. I, I kind of wonder if people are just done with the new atheists, just kind of done with this... Yeah, I... You know? I, yeah, I do know, and I feel like, frankly, uh, I wrote about atheism for quite a while Yeah. until I just got... Until I wrote one article that I thought Roy summed it up, then I was done. But And, and I think that part of what caused me to be done also was the fact that I think that that whole mindset is sort of it is waning or I think it's reached its maximum and it can only appeal to so many only appeal to so many people it's also soured into this weird kind of alt-right racism and I don't know if you've been following that at all but uh, no, but I'm not surprised. I've seen I've seen a little bit of that over the years, yeah. but I'm, and I'm not terribly surprised by what you say. Yeah, and, and you know, I think that a lot of people are just really done, and they're over it, and they see, you know, this religion versus atheism thing as a stupid false binary, and it is. We can be uh, what a lot of people would understand as atheists, meaning we don't believe in, and, you know, we don't believe in a God, but we still value religious experience. We still value religious community. We still value altered states of consciousness and so on, you know? Um, right. So before we wrap up here, talk about those levels of intimacy between faith and science and how you kind of work through that. So you talk about faith and science as strangers, faith and science as friends, and then faith and science as lovers. What does that mean? And enemies. And, and enemies. Sort of, I, I guess that's, 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 that's the new atheist sort of fundamental, sort of creationist thing, which I, which I find to be, frankly, between you, you and me and the, and the listeners, so uninteresting that it doesn't really warrant it's really boring. More minutes of time. You know, that's um, that's the so, thing. That's the th sorry, I have to I get so triggered by the okay. new it's I get right. I get so fucking triggered by like Sam <laughs> Harris and shit. So <laughs> it's that you're exactly right. It's so boring. It's the most boring thing ever. like and that's I think why I ultimately just moved on. You know, like a lot of people, I was really into the new atheists when I was like in in college, and you know, I ate up Richard Dawkins and and yeah, man, that, that's that's what college is for. I mean, I, you know, it's like you get a free pass, you get a pass to be that douchebag libertarian who's <laughs> super into Richard Dawkins, and then it's like time to grow up, time well, to the the, the, <laughs> the thing with that viewpoint, and and it's and it's and it's the opposite the creationist is that those are just the soil is so thin there's no richness there's no depth there's no there's nowhere to go yes. with it yes and so all the all those books are basically the same book in my mind because there's you can you can, you can there's a few chapters worth of stuff there yes um but then you're done and then and then you know you it's finished there's no depth so that's that's why i think it's not why there's petering out there's so much more that's interesting there i mean there's there's so much interesting nuance and depth that could be had that isn't you know yeah and so anyway sorry i i got triggered and now we're back i've talked it out okay continue so the levels of intimacy uh yeah first they're strangers and and i got these from um a fellow named ian barber who's a british guy who writes a, who 
was really foundational in, in a lot of science and faith work over the last uh, 50 mm. years. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are his categories. Uh, he doesn't call them these names. These are my names. But, you know, on, on one hand, you have science. Uh, but what, what I do in the book is basically say, and I'm trying to make the book very, very, uh, very reader friendly and uh, hit a wide audience with it. And so I, I, take this, I take this rather simple approach, and I say, well, let's talk about what science and faith, how they might relate. And so I say, well, let's instead of thinking about science and faith, let's think about people and how they relate, and maybe we can imagine some ways, uh, imagine science and faith as people and ask how would they relate. And so number one is strangers, you know, live in the same city maybe, but don't really overlap with their friends or their church or their workplace or their neighborhood, schools, you know, nothing overlaps. So they just sort of go about their day, and they get along just fine. Uh, you know, I don't, I can't be friends with everybody, right? You can't know everybody. Uh, and so it's, it's good that, you know, I've got my people and other people have their people and that's fine. You know, so faith and science are essentially strangers. Second level of intimacy would be friends. You know, they, they meet up at a party and they get to know each other a little bit and they sort of hit it off and they have some stuff to talk about. You know, they're, they're not going to get married, you know, they're not going to, uh, you know, be partners for life, but they get together occasionally and have a nice little chat about their common ground. And then the third level would be intimacy, uh, would be rather, uh, pardon me, would be, um, you know, lovers, basically, hmm. um, where they, you know, you know, and, and essentially, uh, essentially are married, you know, complete commitment from both sides to the other side. You know, they're, they're, they're different enough, to st- so it stays interesting, but, they're, but they have enough in common to where they, where they can, you know, stand together and walk alongside each other. Uh, so there's some interest, but there's also a lot of good foundation together, and they get along. They're better together than they are apart. Yeah. So that's those are the three levels that that I that I talk about. I love that. And uh, you know, one of the tenets of the Satanic Temple. By the way, dear listeners, I'm I'm working so hard to not make this just a uh, a podcast about. Uh, Satan at modern Satanism, and <laughs> like I'm working so hard to keep this uh, podcast wide in su- in subject matter. Um, but the let me pull it up here. One of the tenet of the Satanic Temple for listeners who might be freaked out by this. I've done a lot of work on modern Satanism, and so you can. uh, check out my interviews and writing on it. Uh, But one of the tenets is belief should conform to our best scientific understanding of the world. We should take care never to distort scientific facts to fit our beliefs. You know, I, I don't know how much you would agree with the wording of that, but to me, that is a religious articulation of that marriage between... Yes. Yeah. between religion and science. Um, faith, right. the word faith, I am I may be less comfortable with that word than you are. I don't know if I have faith. I mean, I, I know I have faith in, in some, you know, I, I have faith in stuff. Uh, we all have faith, but I don't know if I have, like, a faith in God. But I... Right, well, when, when I say, when I use the word faith, in the book, I mean something quite broad, but... Sure. Personally, when I talk about faith, what I mean is fundamentally a real like conscious trust in the goodness of life. Yeah. I definitely have that. Yeah. Yeah, I can I, tell you do. I can tell you do. I definitely get behind that. You know, there's there's a lot that is irrational and but I choose to believe anyway. <laughs> you know? Um yeah. so um I I think that's beautiful and that merit that that marriage between science and religion 
is where they move from strangers to lovers. I think a lot of people are looking for that. I think I think so too. You know, I um you know, I read an article and I'm totally um I'm not going to be able to cite it because I don't remember it, but it was an article about why the reasons people give for leaving the Catholic Church. And I spent a good amount of my time within Catholicism and okay. one of the reasons was the the di- the cognitive dissonance that people felt between science and what they felt to be the teachings of the Catholic Church, right? What right. they saw as the teachings of the Catholic Church, which um, is, to me is kind of ironic because the Catholic Church, you know, ever, they sort of straightened themselves up after Galileo. It took them a while, but they did it. Yes. and uh, they're, they're, you know, as far as I can tell, I'm not Catholic. Is that they're they're so much more open to science than oh, the average yeah. Protestant. Well, I mean, like the Jesuits. You know, my partner is a former Jesuit. He, you know, the Jesuits are incredible, and you know, it's just science, yeah. scientific innovation. Like, talk about you know, scientific curiosity. Yeah, I, I forget where I was going with that. Oh, yes, I think a lot of people feel this deep dissonance um, yes. between the faith that they are given and the science that is revealed to them. And and I, I feel like it, it... I experienced that as this impossible conflict within myself for years because it's like I have this rational side and... You know, I have this love of science as a layperson, you know, as as, you know, kind of an as as a reader, I'm fascinated by it. So I read a lot of popular science, you know, kind of science written for a general audience. I love that shit. I eat it up. But then there's this deeply religious part of me that needs symbol, that needs a scaffold of meaning. Right. Exactly. That's that's exactly it. Yeah. Um, and I have personally found that within TST. But but a lot of but TST isn't TST is for a minority of people. TST is for weird people and um, it isn't going to work for everyone. But I feel like most people my age are dealing with this. You know, like I, I have a lot of conversations about faith and doubt and religion with a ton of different people because of this podcast. And this is what always comes up is this dissonance and people searching for a way to reconcile their religious identity with their understanding of science. Um, so I think your book is um, is speaking to that. And I and I hope well, more... thank you. I'm glad to hear that. And I'm glad yeah. to hear that it's hitting a broader audience that, that it's resonated with you yeah outside of you know traditional church land yeah absolutely and uh you know i will send my infernal minions to go read the book to go buy it up (laughs) 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 um so can i can i end on a really random question sure so you mentioned galileo i've heard a i've heard a lot of contesting a, a lot of different versions of that story well so what the fuck happened you're an astrophysicist. Like, set the record, <laughs> set the record straight. What happened with Galileo and the Church? Well, the the bottom line you got to know, which we all know, is that Galileo was right, and yes. uh, that's why we talk about him. So, uh, about what goes around what, and um, so what happened with Galileo is that basically he was like anybody at 
at that time, he was a Catholic, right? I mean, it wasn't like a really strange thing to be Catholic, you know, in, in that part of the world, you know, 400 years ago. So he was mm-hmm. Catholic. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, and the, and the powers that be were uh, secular and religious, but, but there was a plenty of religious in, uh, power. And being in Italy, uh, of course, he was close to the... Uh, close to the Vatican. But anyway, the point is, is that he made some discoveries that didn't sit well with the prevailing ideas at the time. And actually, his first enemies were not religious people. It was years before religious people got and got concerned with what he was doing. It was the philosophers in the academies that hated him because hmm. um, he went against Aristotle, basically. Hmm. Uh, he went against Aristotle. At the time, Aristotle was basically the entire curriculum. So he was threatening their way of life. Uh, but the thing that happened with Galileo is, is one, a couple things you need to know about him. One is that he was he was incredibly observant, and he was an, an, an incredible observer of nature. He was also an incredible communicator, mm-hmm. and the way he communicated was uh, in Italian. So he wrote books for everybody to read, not just the the you know the learned people who sort of uh, trafficked in Latin. Mm-hmm. He read he wrote books for everybody. He was also a, 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 an incredible marketer and self-promoter and um, basically got himself in a lot of trouble in the end by uh, by writing a book. The Pope gave him permission to write the book, and he wrote the book, and the book was about the two competing world systems. You know, Earth goes around the sun, sun goes around the Earth, and it was a dialogue. You know, back in those days, you know, philosophical books what we might call scientific books were written as in dialogue, which I think is lovely. Um, yeah. But basically, th- there was a dialogue between three characters, and 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 the the, the one who defended the old system, the uh, the uh, the Ptolemaic system, the Earth-centered system, the one who defended that was named Simplicio, and you can tell from his name that he was you know a simpleton. He was you know really sort of dull-witted, and um, the uh, the uh, agreement with the Pope was that this book could be written only if Galileo treated the sun-centered universe as a hypothesis and not as actual fact. In other words, you need had needed to be, in the words of Fox News, fair and balanced <laughs> between the two. Yes, <laughs> and uh, and it didn't come off that way. He right. put the words of the Pope directly into the simpleton's mouth, and uh, the Copernican system came out looking much better. And that's what ultimately got the got the fury of the Pope. Uh, so, uh, but there was a lot more than that. Uh, sure. a lot more than that uh, that led to it. So it was kind of like he was uh, he was committing a form of blasphemy almost against the Pope by not doing what the Pope yeah. asked, kind of. Yeah, yeah, uh, he was uh, not. He was he was judged uh, uh, probably heretical, but not mm. definitely heretical. Uh, he was not charged with blasphemy, but he was charged with with okay. heresy in the end. Um, and also, I need to let your readers know that he did not spend the last ten years of his life in jail. Okay, he was not imprisoned by the uh, so that that was Inquisition. that was a myth. That, yeah, that's a that's a story that that sounds that that's another one of those myths, like the um, you know the people being you know in, in sort of the crown of creation. Right. Uh, back in the Middle Ages, uh, that is just somebody got started and has never gone away. But the last 10 years of Galileo's life, he was in his villa south of Florence, where he was tending his vineyards and writing some, doing hey. some fundamental work in physics. That sounds like a pretty, and, uh, pretty awesome. Life. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but, he, but, but, I, but, but, he, but, but he was under house arrest. He couldn't leave. Right. So I'm, I'm not going to pretty it up too much. Sure. But he was not, in fact, uh, in prison. Okay. You know, in some some dank cellar somewhere. So, so was the 
issue that the Catholic Church just saw geocentrism as as the truth, uh, and but or were there theological implications to that that Galileo trespassed when he said, "Well, this isn't true." There, there are theological implications, but the issue was that um, uh, Galileo treated it as it were proven, right. as what he was saying was proven. Okay. The powers that be in the church were open-minded. Okay. Uh, but they were very cautious. They were, if anything, they were. Ex- perhaps too cautious, because what they wanted was they were willing to accept Galileo's point of view as long as Galileo proved it, but he had not. Right. Galileo never proved anything, mm. never never even came particularly close to it. Okay. Um, that wasn't until later, when, with Kepler and Newton, that things became so clear that the, the evidence was overwhelming. And right. I think all the Catholic powers wanted to do was to hold off until such a time came to where they could accept it, because it would be a wholesale rearrangement of not only physics but theology. Right. And they weren't willing to go that way and to do all that work without really good evidence. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. Thank you for clearing that up. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, all right. Well, I feel like, as always, we have just started the conversation and the podcast is over. That was a, that was a quick hour. Yeah, isn't it goes by fast, isn't that crazy? Um so for people who are interested in finding your work, where can they do that? Uh my website is pwallace.net. Okay. Awesome. Everyone go. Everything you need is there. Everyone go to his website, buy his books, read his books. They're really interesting and uh yeah, follow him on Twitter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All right, well is there anything that I forgot to add that you would like to mention? No, I'm happy. I had a okay. good time. Okay. Great. Well, Stephen, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much. Yes, absolutely. It was wonderful to talk to you, and uh, have a great day. Hopefully we can do this right. again. Yeah, that'd, that'd be good. I'd like to have you on a podcast so I can ask you about this whole satanic thing. Yeah, for sure. I'd be delighted. I'm sure you would. All right. Peace out. All right, man. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Well, that was my interview with Paul Wallace. As always, the music is by Eleven D Seven and the Jelly Rocks. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you listen to music. Special thanks goes to my assistant, Ramakrishna Das, who does all the visuals for the show, helps me stay on track. He's also the co-host of my patrons-only show, House of Heretics. If you would like to support this show, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long, and you can ensure that this show has a long life. And as always, thanks for listening.